Would you want to be a retailer today? You betcha. We use the dreaded R word, retail. It truly is about the human need to socialize. Hi, I'm Andrew Parsons, CIO at Resolution Capital. In our second podcast, I'm speaking with Don Wood, the long-standing president and CEO of US Federal Realty Investment Trust. Federal Realty owns shopping centers in high-income markets in the US. But Federal is not your standard shopping center owner. The company has been making a concerted effort to develop mixed-use assets, which gives it a particularly interesting perspective of the state of the retail industry. So I started off talking to Don about his early career, including his time at the Trump Organization. I'll tell you, Andrew, the, I think, as you know, um, I am a CPA by, by training. Um, and I came out of school and went to work for Arthur Anderson. Mm. Um, and I was with Anderson for seven plus years. So those formative years in your early and mid twenties, um, it was such an, such that, uh, as you, as you know, um, the Trump organization was my largest client and, um, that meant, you know, we're back in 1985 and 86 and 87, where uh, I was the manager on, on accounts like Eastern airlines that he owned at that time and the Plaza hotel. And then he got into these things called casinos. And so in resting control of one of them, um, which was a partially completed, uh, hotel casino called Resorts International with the adjacent Taj Mahal, the greatest of all things that was going to be attached to it. Um, his people, uh, the guy that I had been primarily working with that, uh, on the, on the job, uh, asked me if I wanted to come down and, and be the vice president of finance of the Taj Mahal and Steve Arthur Anderson and, you know, get this amazing sum of $100,000 us a year. Um, to get 100,000 US a year, that meant you had to last the year though. Yeah. So that was a little <laughs> And uh, And so I left to, to go uh, be the vice president of finance of a, of a, of a partially complete building at a, uh, at a crazy time. It was right before the, real, the SNL crisis, the savings and loan crisis in, in the States. Um, and so these casinos for Donald and for everybody were critical uh, to be able to generate cash to uh to to satisfy other real estate debt and uh i was there uh through the opening i did not do a particularly good job i could not have been more over my head in a job as a 29 year old finance executive uh it could be and so i was unceremoniously <laughs> escorted out of the building <laughs> and fired after uh after months. and um you know i i i would had my tail between my legs and and uh decided to come back up to uh, new york um where i had started my career with anderson and and went to work for a company called itt and itt was a big conglomerate uh in the day it owned shirt and hotels it did own casinos and caesars and uh, along with a lot of automotive products um, in germany and um it was a big international conglomerate it was a great company to work for uh, and I had a great experience there for a bunch of years until Starwood bought out um, ITT in, uh, in 1998. And I had, you know, uh, decided with my, my wife and at that time four very young kids that we had an opportunity uh, to go somewhere new and 
we were going to stay on the east coast of the United States, but anywhere within that point. And I got a call from this thing called Federal Realty, uh, which is a real estate investment trust. And I'd love to say I, I knew what a REIT was. I'd love to say that I knew all about the industry, uh, but I didn't. Um, instead, I knew that um, I would be able to bring some discipline to an industry at that time that really was still young. Mm. You know, while federal has been around since 1962, the modern read era really only started in the in the early 90s coming out of the SNL crisis. That was about 1998. And and um, after a number of years of, of some pluses, some minuses, uh, et cetera, I was I was made CEO of the company mm. uh, at the end of 2002. And I've been in that role ever since. And not to not to you know, jump ahead uh, at all. I, 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 but I think this is germane to the whole point. I mean, you have to, as a real estate investment trust, decide with your portfolio what you can best do with that portfolio and where it should sit in the uh, in the investor hierarchy mm. of, of objectives. Mm. And what had been built at Federal was a very high quality um, portfolio generally of shopping centers that were on the coastal markets and um, they were purchased through the 60s, the 70s, the 80s and, and 90s. And so by the late 90s and 2000s, if you if you think about what happened to those first tier suburbs around Boston and, and Washington, D.C. and Philadelphia, um, they 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 matured greatly and that all inured to the benefit of, of federal. But the company was pretty disparate and it was going in a lot of different directions. And, and some of those directions were diluting, um, uh, frankly, what could happen um, with the portfolio. So we simplified. And the objective that I laid out for everybody, and we have not um, uh, come off this at all, is, is this company is about an increasing stream of cash flows. And... Um, other than a global pandemic, which is going to put a dent in that, um, really through a naturally cyclical business, which which we have and always will have, um, the objective was, all right, how do we best set ourselves up to get through both the high times and the low times while still having real estate that can produce an increasing stream of cash flows? And if if we were sitting around um, with a few other people and saying, okay, what's the most important part of being able to accomplish that? I think you'd agree that there are a few tenets associated with that. First off, look, at the end of the day, you can't, in my view, compromise on the quality of the real estate. And when I say quality of the real estate, I don't mean pretty um, or, or, you know, isn't that beautiful looking? I mean, <laughs> demand has to eat, has to exceed supply and and it's that basic you have to be able to have a piece of real estate and a product on that real estate where you have you give yourself the best chance to have two people fighting for every one spot it's not always possible but it's i mean it's about as basic a business concept as you can imagine yet somehow it gets lost so number one, we would never, you know, if you're, if you're going to have a continuing stream of, of cash flow increases through, through um, cycles, you can't, uh, you know, uh, back off on quality. But there's other things. 
diversification. And when we talk about diversification, you know, I don't, I don't, um, it, it's not only diversification of tenants, which is critical, but in my view, it's diversification of property types because a power center is different than a grocery anchored strip, is different than a, a lifestyle type center uh, or a mixed use property or a street retail property. And what I think one of the critical parts of, of our success has been, we didn't shackle ourselves uh, voluntarily to only one type of property. We instead viewed, viewed ourselves as real estate people. And our job was to bring large number of people to a particular piece of real estate. The, the commonality was we need to do that using retail because that's what we knew the best. But in what format? We were agnostic. So, so a great grocery anchored shopping center in a community that, that, that is what that community needs and, and, uh, and we can create demand exceeding supply, terrific. If we're in a more densely populated area where you know, intensification of that land is, uh, is, is feasible, uh, we can go up. Now, if you're gonna go up into the air, retail doesn't work. <laughs> so you've gotta develop that expertise for other uses. Still using the spine and the creation of, of the masses to that piece of real estate as retail, yet exploiting the, the benefit of doing that on the ground floor with office and, and uh, residential up above. And, and so diversification of, of product type, diversification of markets, diversification of tenant base, highest quality properties, and most importantly, a balance sheet that was low levered, that had, had both debt obligations that were long-term in nature, which mirrored the asset side, and frankly, equity owners who were long-term in nature, who echoed the asset side. And that's a hard part. That's hard to, that's hard to find. Yeah. Well, Don, there, there's so much in those opening remarks to, to digest. And I, I think you've really, you know, again, touched upon why we think um, uh, federal is, is best in class. Now, the problem is, and, and I will um, uh, come back and qualify some of those remarks, best in class, but dare I say it, are you in the wrong school? In other mm -hmm. words, retail at this point is going through some extraordinary challenges. Now, to your point, I know you've said retail is the spine to um, getting the most out of the underlying land. And, and, and uh, that I think that approach that you've got is, is the right way to look at it. So there's so many things that we'd like to discuss in terms of, you know, for retail, it is about, you know, if we look back in your time, my time in the industry, constant change. Every year there's a new threat to retail. So is it is it this just a more amplified challenge or is this a new paradigm that we're going through? Yeah, well, well, I do think it's a new paradigm and I think it's been coming. Mm. Um, I think uh, COVID has accelerated mm. it, certainly. Mm. But the, the notion and, and I, I sound like an old record here, but but there is no question that that this country, the US, has been over retailed for a very long time, every bit of a decade, decade and a half. Um, 
And, and that's an important thing in the supply demand equation, right? The difference is, and this applies to a lot of businesses, I have never been a believer in commodity anything. A commodity by its very nature means the only way I can, I can compete is on price. And that's just no fun. And so to have a business that I'm running only based on being the cheapest um, answer, which in an oversupplied retail uh, perspective would, would, uh, would be where you get in a, in a commodity-based product, uh, that's not a place I ever wanted to be because I didn't think I can could have an increasing stream of cash flows through cycles with, with, uh, with commodity. So the differentiation, if you will, and got it, you betcha, we use the dreaded R word, retail, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an oversupplied market. But if you, if you really dig into what our retail is, it truly is about placemaking and the human need to socialize and to be, to be anywhere other than in the four walls of their apartment or their house, which by the way, by very by, by very definition, are are smaller places where people spend less time. Again, I'm not talking about the 12 weeks of pandemic or 16 weeks or 26 weeks or whatever it became. But but I mean, you could you could see it with the pent up demand as soon as people thought things were getting better. Uh, here, out they came. Where'd they come? They came to Pike and Rose. They came to Santana Row. They came to Assembly Row. They came. The the amount of outdoor seating we added. Uh, to restaurants, the the uh, pickup, curbside pickup, uh, coordinated program for the whole company that we added. Doing, we saw how they were were, you know, absolutely embraced. Um, and so the the notion that um, human beings for the long term are not going to to find their uh, their their lives in a combination of outdoor places that that facilitate their lives, where they work, where they live, where they shop, um, et cetera, is just I I just don't buy it. I, I I'm not going to let COVID or anything, frankly, change that basic thesis because I don't I don't see it that way. Now what I do see is a a pretty interesting dynamic, and this is what I'm about to say is lucky. Those central districts, central business districts, Manhattan. Downtown Washington D.C., uh, you know, downtown Boston, Massachusetts. I I do worry about that mm. because those places, first of all, don't have coordinated ownership. Building by building, they are what they are. Um, they got so darn expensive um, that COVID on top of them, uh, racial disharmony on top of them. Um, mm it's putting a lot of pressure. And we're starting to see today that interest that we haven't seen before in that first level suburb, that first town out, not two towns out and three towns out, four towns out. People aren't giving up the services that they have become very accustomed to and, uh, and like a lot, yeah. but the, you know, but, but a, uh, a, a Bethesda, Maryland versus downtown Washington, D.C. Mm. Um, you know, a, a Somerville, Massachusetts 
versus downtown um, Boston. San Jose versus San Francisco. We'll see mm. how that uh, how that plays out with, at, at Silicon Valley. Anyway, because of the way we built our company over 50 years, by very by very nature, we were never able to get land and, and to do any things in the central business district. But we didn't want to. We weren't farmers. Mm. So we came in and we are in those in those first, you know, level suburbs. And I think that inures to our benefit big time long term. So we'll come back to, to retail but uh, and the challenges for retail in a minute. But I think maybe it's a great time to then stop and pause and go back to the company's history. And, and maybe if you could help people understand, you know, some of the, the essence of your great properties, whether it's um, Assembly Row or Pike and Rose. But was Santana Row a turning point for the company, do you think, or was it really part of the, you know, the ongoing evolution? No. So my my predecessor and maybe really was what these properties are for for people who aren't familiar with. Yes. The, so there are a number of properties in Federal's portfolio that are outsized. Um, in fact, they're not really properties; they're communities, and um, they're large and mixed use and invested you know, over a billion dollars for each one of them, or will be invested over a billion dollars for each one of them. Santana Row in San Jose, California. Uh, Assembly Row in uh, just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Pike and Rose just outside of, of Washington, D.C. We're building Cocoa Walk in uh, Coconut Grove, just outside of Miami, uh, Florida. And these are office, residential, hotel, over retail, communities and and what we what became crystal clear to us over the 25 years or so that we've been doing it started with Bethesda Row actually is that the the premium that somebody would pay to either live or work in such close proximity to the services of retail and when I say retail I'm not talking about you know, apparel-based mall retail. I'm talking about restaurants. I'm talking about clubs. I'm talking about uh, shops, necessity-based um, retailers, etc. I'm talking about life mm. um, on the ground floor. It became and, really clear and open air. that there were no percent and and critically also open air, right? Typically open air. Critical open air. Mm. Open air is real. <laughs> it has to feel authentic. Mm. It has. It's. We're not building Disneyland. We're not, we're not, you know, we're trying to create real neighborhoods and, and by the way, flexibility. And um, we don't have to heat and cool the uh, whole enclosed environment or secure the whole enclosed environment. Um, and so as a result, it really was based on the placemaking desire of of uh, of human beings it's it's hard to grasp just how different your dare I say product is because the, the 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 retail hierarchy in the us is just so distinct and you you've really tried to create a more holistic um approach to the real estate um and and, and again i mean santana row is an amazing a project and interestingly it sits literally across the road from 
Westville Valley Fair. And I think um, uh, uh, your Pentagon Row sits opposite Simons Mall, etc. So they live in the sort of, dare I say, the shadow, but they don't, they're not overshadowed, if you if you know what I mean. It, it's a different customer. Yeah. It's a different, you know, Santana Row was, was envisioned by my predecessor, mm. a guy named Steve Gutman, who really was a, is a great visionary in terms of in terms of consumers and how to consume and and what retailers want etc and and it was inspired actually by las ramblas in barcelona and and you know that notion of that street and and the the environment that it creates and the the um overall attractiveness of wanting that street to be part of your life somehow and uh, that's where it came from that was the inspiration and now the the what you need is with <laughs> with inspiration is execution yeah. and and where we stumbled was it was in my opinion too large and an undertaking for a company of our size mm-hmm. and and you know we effectively priced it out um in the heyday of the of the late 90s and we leased it up in the dot-com bus of the early 2000s mm-hmm. Low revenue, high cost doesn't seem to work out, and it was a you know, it was a six seven hundred million dollar bet in a one point six billion dollar company, and and that's that's just that makes sense. Yeah. And so that's what created the the consternation. Um, it was a management turnover. It's when I took yeah. over at, at at that particular time, and 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 you know if you look back and you and you you think about it, one it was critical for us in the next twenty years to to put the 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 controls in place mm. of balance you'll never see assets under construction more than 10 percent of of our company's uh value mm. and um at least our company's value up until a few months ago <laughs> <laughs> but you know we we were talking about yeah we're talking about asset values of, of 13 billion dollars or so we have billion dollars under construction that makes sense but that that again is an interesting point isn't it that the the, the company did face a massive challenge with Santana Row and it was it was a, a project that as you say was challenging it was a massive fire um, uh, during the construction period but to some degree it was from those dare I say it mistakes that a lot of lessons were learned and a great project was was created so to some degree, every company is going to go through its learning phase um, and hopefully learn massive lessons and, and go forward. Clearly. Mm. But, you know, if, if could have learned the same message with a more modest sized project, given the size of the company mm. or a different way to structure it with partners, et cetera. So today, for example, lots of uh, lots of our competitors are are trying to do mixed use and and many of them um and i think this is smart are mitigating their risk they know what they know they don't you know they know what they don't know um and they're mitigating their risk by bringing in partners uh on on individual buildings that are uh that are part and parcel of the projects so that residential building over there or that office building that hotel etc Interestingly for us, one of the things, one of the lessons learned is that the beauty of mixed use in a large community, I don't mean one building with a 
Starbucks in the basement and office above it. I mean, a true community, a mixed use community. One of the biggest lessons that we we learned was if you're look, it costs more to do it. It's more complicated to put it together. It takes more time. So therefore, by definition, whatever, you know, however you underwrote it going in, it will be different when you're done. Might be better, might be worse, but it's going to be different. And so the critical part of it for us is squeezing out the value comes from the integration of all those components together. And it's difficult to do that when you give a residential developer that building to do and an office developer that building to do. And, and so rather the, the, the notion of, of, you know, a, a controlling it all, but mitigating risk with maybe a joint venture partner on 40% of the whole thing. So to me, that's smarter. Now, every one of these projects is different and we've done something different in almost every one of them, depending upon the economics of the particular marketplace that we're in, but never losing control of the integration of these, these uses. Because if you can integrate them well, you will get 300 hours a, a, a month more from somebody living upstairs a great of a great community than living in a similar apartment without such amenities yeah. a month or two away. Yeah. It's hard. So, I mean, again, I don't want to pigeonhole because that, 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 that I agree is not accurate, but I'm going to have to work with, with, within certain confines. And obviously everybody is trying to now follow a mixed use path. But what you're saying is, you know, you haven't started with a, with a piece of land that was dead as you, that was sort of dedicated to retail. And then you're trying to add things in what you've, really have is a project that is a, a true mixed use and that to me that's where i sort of wanted you to talk about because as i say it seems like it's the the solution to all the retail property owners woes let's go mixed use and i'm just trying to work out how hard it is to 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 transform into that or have you really got to start with that clean piece of paper do you think well you know it's a couple of things first of all starting with a clean piece of paper that, that let me get to the main the main point is there are really very few places that can support a large-scale mixed-use community because ma many fewer than people believe every town mayor city council wants their mixed-use community to be the center of their town all across the states that's what they want it doesn't economically work in fact it doesn't come close the bottom line is you have to have rents whether they're retail rents residential rents office rents that are somewhere between 10 and 20 percent higher than other comparable properties right in the, in the region. And there is actually, in my view, a ceiling on how much more somebody's willing to pay. So they almost have to be in expensive communities to start with that you can add on 200, 300 bucks a month on top of and have that be digestible, if you will. Because the costs are going to be higher and the carry 
is going to be higher because it's going to take longer uh, to do. And so starting that as a, in, as a greenfield project in a place where your whole dependency is on creating that, that population density around it takes forever and, and really creates, there's going to be drag on the early stages of these things anyway. <laughs> if, you're, if you're in addition to the natural drag of, of a new project, adding on to that, you need the area to densify. Uh, I don't know how the IRR ever works. So starting with it, there are fewer places that this can happen. You know what really helps? When the land basis is low because you've owned it for a long time. So at Pike and Rose, where we have a, you know, $700 million in now to a, a, a big mixed use development and a whole lot more that to do, you know, we've controlled that land since the 80s. So we're not buying into the land cost of 2016, 17, 18, and trying to make those, those numbers work. That's a big deal. The bigger deal is on the other side of the balance sheet. And this is the point that gets missed by most people. The best way to mitigate the increased risk of mixed use is a lower cost of capital. Because in and of itself, a mixed use project is gonna have a higher cost of capital than a, a straight, you know, buying a grocery anchor shopping center. Well, the only way to mitigate that cost of capital, or the, I don't know about the only way, the way federal has made it work as a public company is we maintain and grow a very large portfolio of grocery anchored and uh, other you know, formatted retail in great locations that provides a steady and increasing stream of cash flow. That allows us an A rating from Moody's and Standard & Poor. That allows us to, to uh, be able to issue bonds that support building a Pike and Rose, a Santana Row, et cetera, at a 75 basis point, 100 basis point benefit to what it would otherwise be. That's the best way to mitigate risk. So even if somebody knows exactly how to do it, if they're paying 75 basis points more for the money to do it, they've got a lot more, their margin of error is far smaller. So then you raised a point that I want to pursue, and that is with traditional retail, do you think that the industry was complacent too slow, or is it is it because of the nature of the long-term leases, it's hard to transform um, and, 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 and give the consumer and the tenant what they need? It's a combination. There's a lot of absolute retail out there. Yes, sir. Um, it's a combination of both. I, I do think, you know, the very nature, <laughs> I, yeah, I, was, I was saying to somebody, you know, if we make a decision in 2020 that the future for a particular piece of real estate is a mixed use community outside of Boston, Massachusetts, et cetera, uh, with a favorable land basis and favorable cost of capital, and we master plan it, it's probably going to deliver the first dollar of rent somewhere around 2027. It's probably going to mature somewhere around 2030. 
imagine what's changed between today and 2030. And and so you got to be right. You got to be right about long term thinking. If if a clothing shop goes in and their styles are outdated, they can change. <laughs> if you've master planned and built your real estate in a place with on a particular format, you better be right because you can't change. I mean, I don't want to be too harsh on the industry, but in 2010, Amazon was not unknown. Exactly right. So you're talking about a 10 year time frame and everybody says, oh, COVID and all the rest of it. But the e-commerce story has been around for at least 15 years. I mean, you know, longer really, but in terms of people started to understand. So I'm trying, still trying to understand what the retail or the, the shopping center industry, how it adapts. I mean, again, do, 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 do retail landlords respond to tenant demand? Or do they curate, in other words, do, do they influence the tenant mix? Because, uh, well, every, you know, this, every company is different. I will tell you if, if, if the company was simply a commodity based company mm -hmm. and is comprised of the notion of we're going to buy new centers and that's how we're going to grow, mm -hmm. create earnings, you know, by buying something at a seven cap and, and financing it at a five cap, you know, 5%. If that's the mindset, then merchandising, curating are of less importance. Mm -hmm. They are, they are, who's the largest tenant? Have you ever gone or have you ever seen a shopping center, you know, with, with, um, with five banks in it and why a community needs five banks in the shopping center? I know why there's five banks because they were the highest rent payers yeah. and they wanted to compete with each that's other. Right. But that's got nothing to do with, with, with serving the community and, you know, in a in creating a place, if you will, that will will engender people to want to hang out there and live their lives, make it part of their lives. And so there's a lot of I mean, if you're everybody says they have a long term focus, <laughs> they don't act like no. that. I mean, look, you know, again, you know, you look in the years in the 2000s, there would have been literally 15 to 20 cell phone retailers in, in an Australian shopping center because that's where the tenant demand was. So you leased to the tenant demand. As you say, we didn't need 15, but the 15 cell phone retailers worked out who was going to be the ultimate winner, which was Apple eventually anyway. And then the next crop comes along of people trying to tap into the latest consumer spending patterns. So where, where are we at then for the next 10 years, do you think in terms of... Um, you the, 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 yeah, I am just so sure, and and this just goes to the core. I the core of me. I mean, I guess I could be totally wrong, but I I I truly believe you need a differentiated product, and you need to be the consolidator in a community. Hmm. You need to be the piece of real estate with the product on that piece of real estate that is the number one, maybe number two, depending on the size of the. Uh, size of the market that you're serving there choice for those though that community if you are number three if you're just one of something else there's not enough for you <laughs> so i don't know how there can't be sizable vacancies mm. that are not six months that are years in the making mm. 
I don't know how there isn't there 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 isn't um, uh, you know uses of the land that 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 uh, are nowhere near highest and best use any longer for what they what they are, um, and so I can tell you I would get out of this business per, me personally. Mm. I would retire. I'd say thanks. It's been a great ride. Mm. Let's let's go. You know, learn technology or something. I would do that today if I didn't believe, if I didn't have a differentiated product where I believed mm. that I was going to be able to create demand from lesser real estate. So, so whether that's a closed mall is, or somewhere. Who else. clears this product? In other words, who does what? Who clears it? Because. I'm not sure I've come across too many people who buys a retail property in the last three years. And I don't think that story is going to change anytime soon. So what I, I do believe it's a long road. Yeah, it's a long road, often financially. And this doesn't necessarily apply to the to the public guys. It certainly applies privately. Um, there is a clearing price where all you do is take the decreasing stream of cash flow and you milk it for the next three, seven, 10 years, whatever it, whatever it is. And then it has no residual value at the end, but it doesn't need to have a residual value because there's a price that you can buy it on where you can get three, five, seven years of cash flow, diminishing level of cash flow. And I think that's, that's, you know, I did a, I did a, um, I did a presentation in 2012 uh, to the, the real estate media industry i can't even think of the name of whatever the trade group was um but it was entitled you know why is your why is your crummy mall uh going to always be a crummy mall and you know i started by saying and it doesn't have to be a mall a shopping center whatever whatever you want to want to whatever the product is how many times do you go by or do people in the states go buy something and say they should really do something about that why don't they put a blank there why isn't that that the answer is simple. It's math. <laughs> because the costs don't justify, the revenues don't justify the cost. It's, it's better to just milk that cash flow stream down to, to zero or near zero and then, but then the, hand back the This is a massive victory for a lot of pension funds though, right? A lot of in, it is. Yeah. This is this is probably one of the great challenges. I mean, you know, you look back uh, at previous, uh, the, as you said, the savings and loan crisis, et cetera. I get the sense this retail problem is because it's been the backbone of a lot of institutions, uh, funds has been retail because it's been the easy money story for 30, 40 years. It's an easy money story. I think it's complicated today uh, in the middle of COVID particularly. Because I can tell you, if I were to tell you, I mean, I, you'd, tell, you'd call me a liar. If I told you of our 105 properties, the 10 properties that have held up best in the second quarter of 2020, and the 10 properties that have done the worst in the, the second quarter of 2020, those 10 that did the best are some of our worst properties. Because they are smaller, necessity-based, um, that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with it. If you're buying real estate 
for the next pandemic, <laughs> that's what you should buy. <laughs> but but nobody, I mean, one of our worst performers in the second quarter is Bethesda Row. Bethesda Row is going to be worth so much more as people consolidate to it, as demand exceeds supply. Not in 2020 or the first quarter of 2021, but no question in my mind in 2022, three, four, five, because the nature of the type of tenancy, heavily restauranted, uh, you know, a health club, uh, et cetera, that type, that type of thing, of course, hurts right now. Of course it does. But value of real estate, where is the real estate going to go up in value versus slide down a little bit? <laughs> it's clear as a bell to me. Clear as a bell. But as a public company, there's a bond, you know, I mean, right now, there'll be second quarter earnings that go out. And all you'll see is how much rent was collected in a particular month or the particular quarter, right? <laughs> well, uh, and, and short term. So, so to 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 the best of your ability, I mean, what what do you think the enduring impacts are going to be of this current experience? To the best of your ability, and I'm not. I don't think anybody is is really sure about anything at, at the moment, but or, or less sure. What what's your your sort of key themes you think first of all i i think the notion of curbside pickup is a, is here to stay forever whatever forever means for a long time the notion of the convenience that people have gotten very used to is not going away so your service had better be better do i believe there will be a health club uh, concept in the future? I absolutely do. Do I believe it's going to be ugly to get there? And will the new owners own them at 30 cents on the dollar? Or the, Yeah, I do. Maybe the same for movie theaters. They'll be different. The business plan pre-COVID doesn't work. So what's the new business plan for those companies? Big question mark. But any way I look at it, I do believe those legacy costs will have to somehow be dismantled through bankruptcy and others, other ways. But at, but when I think about, and, and so, so business ownership and the basis of, of owning that business will be reduced. The need, the, the acceleration of the deterioration of shopping centers will be increased. The need for differentiation and to me, social gathering will be elevated further than it was before. And and the, the biggest uncertainty for me, I just don't know the answer to what I'm about to say is how long it takes for the central business districts mm. yeah. to come back. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating point. I mean, we, you know, here in the office, we've all been saying we, we haven't been to our local shopping malls as much in the last three months as we probably have in the last 12 because we used to come into the city and, and, and take care of things in the city. And now we're so the suburban, as you say, that first ring, second ring retail or, or, or place making a term uh, is has become more important in our lives. I, right. 
So therefore, for retailers, this is a massive, massive, uh, you know, store optimization and 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 um, uh, product uh, change, etc. So, uh, would you want to be a retailer today, or do you think it's an, uh, in fact a great time to, for, for for retailers in 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 some respects? Well, it's it's interesting to me. So, opportunistic people mm. um, will be there in whatever condition you know, whatever the situation is, what we're seeing now, I'm finding fascinating. Um, if you're a restaurant and you're in a central business district, uh, you are absolutely decimated because the people who were there for lunch every day aren't there. Um, and so what we're finding is those restaurateurs, either ones that, that had uh, you know, great restaurants in the central business districts before COVID or those that are investors in those type of concepts are rushing to take advantage now to do the first, to move to the first ring suburbs. The reason is they're moving closer to where they're moving to where their customer went. Yeah. Yeah. Customer's home. Mm. And, and the bet that that will be something that lasts a long time, whether that be sometimes in the office, sometimes they're home or not, is is pretty compelling to suggest that even if they do ultimately go back to the CBD, the Central Business District down the road, they're still going to take a shot in in you know that first rank suburb mm. because there are failed restaurants in those first rank suburbs which have been built out mm. and it speed matters, mm. which it does. Mm. They can get set up. Our deal with them won't be great. They've got leverage right now. They're going to use that leverage. But having, you know, cutting that deal such that we've got upside to the extent it works out mm. is really important right now. Mm. That's a kind of an example of the opportunists, um, you know, ability to, to, to kind of see to, to get in better real estate than they've been before. Mm um and and be able to consolidate if you will uh where those people live i mean again what's fascinating is that um still the most efficient uh way to deliver goods isn't for the delivery truck to drive it to the home it's still for us to go and collect so uh, the value of your locations and the infrastructure that supports them you think people are underestimating that i i do and and I thought you when you said that the most efficient way is to go pick up your 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 goods as opposed to the delivery truck, it's it's mostly financially efficient. Yes, it, that, that's to me that definition of yes. of efficiency is in a problem that has has persisted for all of the online period the last decade. Mm. How do I get this in that end user's hands profitably? really has been hard to, to solve and we're seeing it now if you've got the commute you've got that close in great piece of real estate where where the customer regularly goes to that piece of real estate sometimes they go to sit down and have dinner sometimes they go to to pick something up curbside sometimes they go just to stroll and have lunch that's the piece of real estate that is most valuable. 
because it's it's integral to their lives. And that's our that's our our MO, whether it's a grocery anchored shopping center or a big mixed use property. Um, and some are more successful than others that way. But that's the future in terms of, of real estate value um, coming out on the other side of COVID. And then turning to the other thing that's probably been not not highest on the agenda of US REITs relative to REITs elsewhere in the world um, in the last, uh, but it's starting to become more of a, a key theme is sustainability. <clears throat> oh, you know, sustainability, everything with, with, with respect to the words ESG have been so institutionalized and it actually is interesting to me. I don't think we've done a good job at all in communicating what it is that we do because of the markets we're in. Close in suburbs on the in the densely populated cities. Environmentally, social, it, it's all been part of our DNA since the beginning because it has to be. So Pike and Rose is the first lead neighborhood development stage three um, award winner by a US re in the United States. We didn't go out to do that. <laughs> That's what's necessary in Montgomery County, Maryland, when you're creating an environment for the population base there. We didn't cover the top of this garage with, with solar panels to pay for the, for the garage simply be, because we want an ESG score. We don't have the largest uh, outdoor farm on a rooftop at Pike and Rose that serves the vegetables to the restaurants below because we want an ESG store. That's what's demanded. That's what you do in Montgomery County, Maryland for Pike and Rose. The same thing at Santana, the same thing at Assembly. So, so one of the things, and I, I think we've actually just, just um, uh, put our ESG report online only a couple of months ago, and I wish we had done it years ago, because it was, it's what we do, um, but we haven't done a good job communicating. Um, it is, you know, it, it's part and parcel of the DNA of not only mixed use development, but doing business in the communities in which in in which we you know we do business well don i mean you've always told a consistent story and 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 i know that was one of the key issues you mentioned at the start and we really uh, admire the company's commitment to honoring what's best for shareholders over the long term and 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 your ability i think to to uh challenge the industry with with i think some great thought leadership so on that note um again Really appreciate your time, Don, and um, you know, look forward to uh, seeing the story unfold uh, over the next five, ten years. Is the way we should all look at real estate. Andrew, I, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much, and be safe and healthy. Well, that's it for this week's podcast. Thanks for joining us, and hopefully, we'll bring you another session in the coming weeks. Stay well. Bye for now. But before you go, this podcast has been created as general information only and is not intended to be advice of any kind. It does not take into account your personal objectives, financial situation or needs.